Wonderful to be with you today, particularly as we continue um, this series on Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sight, as we look at the role that the sacraments play in our discipleship, in our encounter with God, in our experience of him, and in us discovering more of the truth of who God is. So the question that's asked in that video is, how can we taste and see that the Lord is good. Before we look at the Bible passage for this week, just a recap of what we looked at last week, just in case you weren't here or um, in case, like me, your memories, um, you sometimes don't always remember what was said the week before. Um, Last week, we looked at Colossians 1 as Brogan introduced this sermon series to us. And in Colossians 1, Paul writes to the church in Colossae where he says that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus has made God visible. If you like, if a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality, Jesus is the original and ultimate sacrament. Now the question for us as disciples here today Um, following Jesus in Newcastle in 2022, is how do we see the goodness of God today? How do we experience his love? How do we know that he is with us? How do we know his grace and his forgiveness? Well, the church has always taught that we know all of that stuff through the sacraments. Now, if you think about it, if you think about the Old Testament, for example, God has always attached physical signs to his covenantal promises. Think about Noah in Genesis. When God promises that you'll never flood the whole earth again, he attaches a physical sign to that promise so that whenever we see a rainbow, we might think about the promises of God. Think about the way that God's people were set apart in the Old Testament. The way that they were set apart, men in particular, were marked by a physical sign so that every day, several times a day, they would remember that they were people of God. God has always attached physical signs to his promises and it is no different today. And so the question for us is how do we know the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God in ever-increasing ways. Well, we know it through his word, through his love for us, but we get greater revelation of it through the sacrament of baptism. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to read the last few verses of Luke 3 and on to Luke chapter 4. I'm not going to be able to say everything that I want to say about baptism today, but we have got another week looking at it next week. So what we're going to do today is just look at Jesus' baptism and what that means for our baptism and our faith and what we see about God through this and therefore through our baptism as well. So Luke chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 21 and we're going to go through to Luke chapter 4, verse 13. Luke chapter 3, starting at 21 through to 4, 13. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was being baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. 
and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Maphat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Marth, the son of Matthias, the son of Samian, the son of Yosek, the son of Yoda, the son of Yonan, the son of Fraser, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Maphat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mephata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminabab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, nearly there, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Apraxab, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Mephezulah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at Jesus's baptism today and what that means for our identity and our discipleship and what we see through baptism about the beauty and grace and love of God. And we're going to see three things in particular today. We're going to see three things made visible in baptism that, if you like, are invisible realities, except for God reveals them through baptism. And they are this. We're going to see the affirmation of the Father, we're going to see the beauty of relationship, and we're going to see the promises of God. The affirmation of the Father, the beauty of relationships, and the promises of God. 
So look with me, do keep Luke chapter 3 and 4 open. Look with me, particularly at verses 21 through to 23. What I want us to notice about this, about Jesus' baptism, is that before Jesus did any public ministry, this is before Jesus has, has healed anybody or anything like that, before Jesus did any public ministry, he came to John to be baptised. Now, the reason that this is so significant for us is that Jesus is affirmed by his Father in heaven before he did anything. Before Jesus raised anybody from the dead, before Jesus cast out any demons, before he preached a sermon on the mount, before he took any amount of bread and some, and some loaves and multiplied them to feed 5,000 people, before Jesus did anything, he was affirmed by his Father in heaven. Verse 22, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now the truth about baptism, what we see in baptism is this, what's true for Jesus in his baptism is true for us in ours. Now that means, for those of us that are following Jesus, that every single day, every single day, before we do anything, we are affirmed by our Heavenly Father. Now that means that for me, my affirmation today is not on whether I preach a good sermon or not. It's not about whether Ellie and I host a good party for all the third year students tonight at the vicarage. My affirmation comes before I do any of that. In fact, before I do anything every single day, I should hear the voice of the Father speaking over me. Ben, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the same is true for you. Before you go to work every day, regardless of your performance the previous day or how you're going to perform that day at work or at university or as a parent or as a neighbour, every single day the Father is speaking over you. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Lots of us struggle, I think, to receive affirmation. The world tells us all kinds of things about affirmation, which we'll look at in just a moment. But sometimes we get our sense of affirmation from how attractive we feel. Or we get our sense of affirmation from how popular we think we are. Or we get our sense of affirmation for how well we're doing compared to that person that we're really competing against all of the time. But the truth of our Christian identity that we see in baptism is that it's not based on any level of of performance. Our affirmation that God loves us is true because he speaks it over us and he has the final say. Now this is the complete opposite way that we're taught affirmation works in the world, isn't it? All of us are used to being tested on things and then marked and then judged. I'm sure lots of you watched the Eurovision Song Contest last night. Just put a hand up if you did watch that. Quite, quite a few. Um, the UK did, I think, the best we've ever done in something like 25 years. Is that right? We came second. Ukraine, though, of course, deserved winners. Um, we're used to watching TV shows like that all of the time. 
where people perform and then they are judged and they're given a score. That is not the way that God does affirmation. God does not look at your life. He's not going to look at your day today and mark you out of 10 and say, you know, give you some kind of score and have the, ju- you know, the jury of all the angels in heaven give you another score and put them together and come up with some score like they did for Eurovision. That's like, that is not the way that the gospel works. If you're feeling judged right now, if there's some level of you judging yourself or you feeling like other people are scoring you, that is not the way that it works with the gospel. I've read this um, several times, this this quote to you um, over the past two and a half years, but just let these words sink in again. This is from King's Cross by Tim Keller. Do you realise that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. The atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They're a good person and they hope eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they're a good person. But performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhist too, performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom and every day you are on trial. And that's a problem. But in Christianity, it's the verdict that leads to the performance. The verdict leads to the performance. Now this means that because my identity is hid with Jesus and that is displayed beautifully in baptism, there is nothing that I could do that would make God love me any less. There's nothing that I could do that would make God love me any more. There's nothing that I could do that would mean that he'd somehow abandon me and that I'd lose my sense of security and salvation in him. It's true because it's true, and he has spoken it over me. This is the core of where our identity comes from. Now, over the past few years, I think that I, the past couple of years in particular, I think that our identity has been pretty rocked by the events of this world. People have lost their jobs and had to get new ones. Relationships have been tried and tested. Um, people have had to do things that they've never, been, they've never had to do before. There's a real sense of this among church leaders, particularly in the, in the Church of England, where two years ago, two and a half years ago now, whenever it was, suddenly everything that we had been taught how to do in terms of leading churches suddenly disappeared overnight. And suddenly every church all over the world was live streaming their services, either on an iPhone or with some fancy cameras or via an iPad or on Zoom or whatever it might be. And suddenly everyone was able to look at every other church and I was able, you know, everyone was able to see what the church down the road is doing. And I know that so many church leaders felt incredibly insecure and judged all the time because of how their services looked or the quality of their preaching compared to the next door parish or whatever it might have been. We forgot that God speaks over all of us all of the time. You are my son, you are my daughter whom I love with you I'm well pleased. Now, I think that today, 
in this nation, up and down this country, all over the world, in fact, there's people sat in churches that think they have to do something in order to earn God's love. It's like the penny hasn't dropped of the gospel. Let me just tell you a quick story. This is four or five years ago now. And Lee and I were in York, just locking up the parish centre at St. Michael of Elfrey. And we were going to cook what I think was a Christmas dinner for the youth, uh, um, the young people at St. Michael of Elfrey. And um, we were pretty late getting over to the, to the parish hall. And um, we were just about to lock the door and some, um, some lovely Mormon missionaries walked up to us and started to you know, tell us about what they believed and started to talk to us about how we could um, you know, join the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints. And obviously we quickly told them that we were, that we were um, Christian ministers at, at this Anglican church. And we were talking for about 15 minutes and um, we were increasingly getting impatient because we, needed, we were already late for cooking this, cooking this Christmas dinner. And suddenly, as they were speaking, I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, they're saying that we have to perform. We have to do certain things in order to get to heaven or in order for us to know that we're going to be all right in eternal life or whatever it might have been. And I said to them, is not going to church exhausting for you? Is it not really tiring? Like you, you not knowing if you're doing enough in order to please God? Or you not knowing that you're doing enough in order to earn your place in heaven? Like you have to do something in order to make God love you. Whereas when we go to church, we can worship not out of a place of doing X, Y, or Z. We worship just because of what Jesus has done for us. Our worship is in response to the gospel, not in order to make the gospel somehow apply to our lives. And that's the most beautiful, freeing thing. It means that our worship should be selfless. Most worship around the world, regardless of your worldview, is selfish because it's all about you. You have to make sure that you're doing enough in order to please whatever God it is that you're worshipping. Whereas there's nothing that we could do that would make... There's nothing that we could do that is going to knock our sense of identity. And therefore we can worship in response to God's love, not in order to earn it. And doesn't that make all of the difference? That means that our worship should be so freeing. I don't have to do anything. I can just be me and respond to God's love. I don't have to work it up somehow. You are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do you know, as you sit here today, that you are an amazing work of God? That you've been knitted together by him? That you're held together by Jesus, as we looked at last week? That the Father is speaking over you and affirming you? In baptism, we see the affirmation of the Father. The second thing that we see in baptism is the beauty of relationship. So we're still looking at verses 22, 23 here, so keep, look, keep looking at them. Now, one of the things that I think that we've had to relearn over the course of the last two years, two and a half years in the pandemic, um, is that there's real power. In fact, the power that we really need is in relationships. Now, one of the things that we see in Jesus' baptism 
is that he absolutely knew who he was in terms of his relationships. I think that Jesus' baptism is one of those glorious moments where we see the beauty of the Trinity. We see it all over Scripture, but it's so clear here. We get a beautiful insight even into the Trinity here at Jesus' baptism. You've got God the Son coming to be baptised, God the Father speaking his affirmation over his Son, and then the Holy Spirit descending on bodily form on Jesus um, and empowering him for all that he's been called to do. Jesus' baptism was also a picture of what he came to achieve in dying on the cross and rising to new life. As he went under the water, it was representative of him taking on all of our mess and sin and pain and suffering. And him coming out of the water was pointing to his resurrection. So you've got literally the cross being enacted out in baptism. All three persons of the Trinity are involved here. Father, Son, and spirit. And what we see here is that for all of time, the Father has been loving the Son, who's been adoring the Spirit, who's been praising the Father, who's been praising the Spirit, who's been adoring the Son, who's been loving the Father, who's been... And it goes on and on and on. That's been going on forever. Now, for those of us that have been baptised, for those of us that know and love Jesus... We have been baptised into those relationships too. We're caught up in that eternal dance and love of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Those relationships, God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they're the, that's the ultimate truth about the world. And we're caught up in that truth in baptism, we're caught up in the love of God. Now, I don't know all of the different relationships that are held in this room right now. I don't know if there's, well, I assume there's lots of us that are struggling with different relationships. Maybe tense relationships with parents or extended family members or housemates or colleagues, children, whatever it might be. The relationship that defines us, though, is our relationship with God. The other thing that is really significant, I think, and the reason that I read every single one of those names out in the genealogy there at the end of Luke chapter 3, there's a reason that, there's several reasons that Luke includes this genealogy, but for, for today, um, let me just comment on one of them. And that is this, that in baptism we get a new family, the family of God. In baptism, we're caught up in this beautiful picture of family. Lots of us, all of us have family of origins, biological families from where we come from. And that's fantastic and they're a really integral part of how God has ordered the world. But God has also, through baptism, in baptism, called us into a new family called the church. Look around at the people sat on your left and on your right, behind you and in front of you. They are your family.
The church is God's plan A, even, for family. It's these relationships that should define us. Not our bank accounts, not our intellect, not our perceived level of beauty. Healthy relationship with God and with each other. In baptism, we see the beauty of relationship. In fact, every time I'd argue, every time that you have a conversation with somebody, or you hug somebody at the end of church, or you pray with somebody, or you sit down and have a meal with somebody, it's sacramental in the fact that it points, the fact that we're able to have relationship with each other. The fact that I'm, I've not seen Nick and Jez in a few weeks now, gave Jez a massive hug when he walked in through the door. That in itself is sacramental of the fact that Friendship is pointing to a, that physical picture is pointing to an invisible reality of the persons of the the persons of the Trinity. We're made in, wired for relationship because God Himself is relational. God Himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's that truth that is the foundational truth of everything that Christians believe. Think about love. How can love exist? Only if God himself is love. How can God himself be love? Only if within himself there's three persons that can pour out love onto each other. Think about creation. How does creation make sense? If you, are, um, if, if you believe in one God who is not three persons, for example, three persons in one Godhead, creation makes no sense whatsoever. How, you, how can you create what you do not know? Whereas our God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, has always been in these creative relationships, pointing to the other. Creativity is at the core of who he is, and therefore creation makes perfect sense. Worship makes perfect sense, but only if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If, again, if you believe in a God that is not triune in nature, what does that say about worship? Does it say that that particular God needs our worship? that he's somehow lonely and needs relationship. Whereas the beautiful thing about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is this. He has all the worship and love and adoration and affirmation that he needs in himself. He doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need my adoration. He doesn't need my love. But the amazing thing is this, that he invites it anyway. He doesn't need it. He's not lonely. He invites it anyway. Everything that we believe to be true about the Bible, about Jesus, about Christianity, about the world, only makes sense if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our relationships only make sense if that is true as well. In baptism, we see that we're caught up in the very nature of God and that we're caught up with each other. We see beautiful relationships. Thirdly, we see this, the promises of God. Now, straight after Jesus' baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tested by the devil for 40 days. And Luke just drops in that comment, doesn't he? And at the end of those 40 days, he was hungry. I mean, who wouldn't be after 40 days of not drinking um, or eating? Now, what I, there's lots that we could say about um, this narrative that Luke gives us about Jesus in the desert. I just want to say a couple of things very quickly. Jesus has just been publicly affirmed by his Father in heaven as the Son of God. Jesus, 
This is my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now notice that the very next thing that happens in Luke's gospel is that while he's in the wilderness, the devil seeks to undermine the identity that he's just been given as the son of God. Now there's all kinds of things that the devil could have done. He could have tempted him in all kinds of ways. He could have, he could have given him any number of things to tempt Jesus. But what's the one thing that he did? He tried to undermine Jesus's identity. If you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here. Now the devil's main strategy to undermine your identity as a child of God is to get you to question whether that is really true. So you might have even had some of these thoughts today. If I really am a child of God, then why am I not as good or righteous or holy as the person opposite me in church? If I really am a child of God, then why is it that I'm always comparing myself to that particular friend? If I really am a child of God, then why haven't I got that job that I've been asking for for so long? If I really am a child of God, then why is it that I don't like myself when I look in the mirror? If I really am a child of God, then why is it that this is happening in my family? Satan wants to attack us at the very heart of who we are. His number one strategy is for you to doubt your God-given identity. Again, Tim Keller in King's Cross says this, Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. Now, question for you, just before we continue going through some of these verses. What is your if at the moment? If I really am a child of God, then you fill in the blank. What's the thing, what's the, what's the lie that's really taking root in your heart at the moment that today we do some business with and say, no more? If I really am a child of God. So how do we overcome these attacks when they do come? Well, what did Jesus do? His reply to the devil three times, every single time the devil said, if you really are the son of God, three times the devil said that. Three times Jesus replied by saying this, it is written. Verses four, verses eight and verses 12. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. It is written, verse eight, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written, Verse 12, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' response to Satan every single time 
is to get the Bible and quote it at the devil. That's his strategy. Now, I cannot emphasise this enough. This book, the Bible, these words of life, are our source and form of defence against all of the lies that we believe about ourselves. It's the word of God that gets to define who we are. Not the world, not our performance. It's the promises in the word of God that get to define who I am. Now, Jesus uses the Bible every single time he's attacked. So if I was Satan, which I'm not, you'll be pleased to know, but if I was, one of the things that I would want to do is to get children of God to somehow doubt that this is real. I'd want to plant little seeds throughout culture that says, the Bible, you can't really trust the Bible, can you? It's just a book that was written over two, between 2,000 and 5,000 years ago. It's got absolutely no relevance for your life at all today. You can't possibly trust the Bible. So many people have written about it. How do you know which, which theological view is right? You can't possibly trust the Bible. It was just a book written by... Um, middle-aged men. It's got nothing to say to anybody in, 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 in this day and age. I'd want to plan all kinds of things so that we would somehow loosen our grip on the truth. But we can't let that happen. Because it's only in here that we receive the truth of God. And so the devil doesn't want us anywhere near it. Now, Jesus knew the Bible so well that he processed all of his thoughts through it. You see this, um, you see this with Jesus all of the time. Whenever Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he's often just quoting scripture, the Old Testament, at them. Jesus is always processing his teaching, his thoughts, his life through the lens of scripture. And when your identity, when the truth of your identity is that deep within you, Satan can't even get a foothold. And that's what we want for all of us. These lies that come, we want them to be banished by the power of God, his presence, and by his truth contained in this word. And one of the ways that that truth is applied to your life is through the sacrament of baptism. Now, I know that all of the promises that are in this book that are written are true, the promises that are written about me are true and effective and applied to my life. Now, that means that if I do begin to question my identity a little bit, or, you know, somebody says something and it throws me off course a little bit, I can say... Or, you know, know, I'm reminded of something that I did years ago. I can say, it is written that God has removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. And that is true. I can say, it is written that God rejoices over me with singing every single day. I can say, it is written that God speaks over me. Ben, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I can say, it is written, I was fearfully and wonderfully made. I can say that it is written that there is no condemnation for me because of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
it is written. Now that is applied to my life by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the word of God and the waters of baptism. And this is what we see in baptism. It's all of God's promises washing over us. We're literally drenched in the promises of God. Now this makes a huge difference to the way that I live my life. Um, 10, 11, 12 years ago, I was a real people pleaser. would do anything that, it, anything that I could to please everybody and anybody around me. When, about 10, 11 years ago now, when I was at Theological College, I suddenly, I think I've told this story before, this penny just dropped in my mind. I don't need to do anything to please anybody. I think I was reading some Leonard Ravenhill, great Yorkshire preacher. He said, it doesn't matter whom you're pleasing if you're displeasing God, and it doesn't matter whom you're displeasing if you're pleasing God. And suddenly, I just, I suddenly, I went through a, a, through a, it was months of just waking up every day and hearing God speak over me, Ben, you are my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. And I knew that there was nothing that anybody could say about me or anything that I could do that would mean that that was not true. Regardless of how I was feeling, regardless of what other people were saying about me, I knew that that was true. And when I sometimes forgot that that was true or started to forget that that was true, all I had to think was one day I got wet. I was baptised and God is true to his promises. The Greek word to be baptised means to be immersed. We're immersed in the presence of God. We're immersed in his truth, in his love, in his grace. Now these are all concepts that are difficult to see. If somebody said, how do you see the grace of God? There's, you know, it's not like you can see grace, except that you can see it enacted out in our relationships. You can see it enacted out in the way that we love one another, the way that we forgive one another. And you can see it enacted out in the sacraments. And so that means that every... Who, who was the last person to be baptised there? I can't remember. Was it Charlotte Robinson? Um, I, I can't... Who, whoever it was. When, when that happened, Charlotte's being baptised, and I'm remembering that these promises are also true for me. That I am immersed in the reality of God. That I'm immersed in God's affirmation. And I see it in the waters of baptism. I'm immersed in beautiful relationships with all of you, but with God himself. And I see that in baptism. And I'm immersed in the promises of God. I might not always be able to see them, but I get a glimpse of it. It's made visible in baptism. Now, when we begin to think about the sacraments like this, it begins to radically change the way it, it changes our whole discipleship, doesn't it? It changes the way that we think about ourselves. It changes everything. They're not just religious things that, that historic denominations do. They're the things that Jesus commanded us to do because they make a difference to our identity and our discipleship, the way that we think about ourselves and the way we think about God. So today, I'm praying... For all of you, this is my prayer as I, was, as I was walking in this morning. My prayer was that you be able to see more clearly and hear more loudly the affirmation of God the Father 
in your life. Some of you walked into church this morning and you were dreading, you're dreading the next few weeks because you've got loads of assessments and exams. Now, if that's you, I'm thinking particularly youth and university students, if that is you, let me say this. Your affirmation, your sense of self-worth, I'm not saying exams aren't important, by the way. They're very important. I've got a few essays due this week. Do do your best in them. But your sense of affirmation and self-worth does not come from your exam results. It comes because God speaks over you. You are my son and my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So I pray that that sense of dread that lots of people are carrying today will disappear. And that you'll know that before you sit an exam, before you submit any dissertation or essay, that you are loved by God. Some people walked in today absolutely feeling overwhelmed because they don't know, um, they don't know if they're performing well enough at work. You've just got a, you've got a meeting in the coming week or two with your boss and you feel like he's going to really be, be judging you, whatever it might be. Your sense of affirmation does not come from that meeting, it comes from God the Father in your life. May you see and hear the affirmation of God. Secondly, some of us have come, walked in today with all kinds of broken relationships. We've got tense marriages, we've got tense relationships with children, with parents, with housemates, whatever it might be. And there's a real sense that that's defining who we are. The, thing, the relationship that defines you most is your relationship with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And your relationships here with, with, with the other people of God. And God has said that they are good. That gets to define you. And thirdly, my, my last prayer was this, that for all of the lies that we believe about ourselves, that we're not good enough, that we're not beautiful enough, that we're not holy enough, that we don't read our Bibles, enough, whatever it might be, they stay here and you walk out free. Being able to say, it is written that I am loved. It is written that I am forgiven. It is written that I am beautiful and adored and rejoiced over by God himself. So can I invite you to stand where you are? We're going to respond as the band come forward.